Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On this episode, we speak with my good friend, Ray Ma, China tech analyst and creator of TechBuzz China and former partner, Greater China, at 500 Startups. We discuss Ray's work with the TechBuzz China podcast and their community, whether the data we get out of China with regards to fundraising can be considered accurate in 2021, what it's like to do due diligence on Chinese tech companies, trends she's seeing in the current tech landscape in China worth watching, the impact that new data privacy regulations have had on social media in China, and lastly, I ask her to compare the Western digital ecosystem to that of China's. Enjoy. Algorithms, AI, you know, all these things are emerging technologies. And China recognizes not just in that, you know, the value of investing to these technologies, but the value of being first to regulate them. Because when you are first to regulate them, you could argue that number one, you give your companies that have to abide by these regulations sort of leg up, right? In the future, they they will be more compliant because they've already invested the resources into following these rules. And the secondly is it's it's a type of soft power in the sense that if these regulations are reasonable then you may very well have other countries around the world who are also struggling to figure out how to regulate them, look at your rules as precedent, and then follow Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Ray, thanks for coming on the show. It's good to have you. Thank you for having me. Quick introduction of yourself. Uh, you know, what city are you in as we're recording? You know, a bit about your history, time in China, all the things that you've been doing for the last however long you want to take us back. Sure. Well, I am based in the Bay Area right now. So in Silicon Valley, for those of you who are not that familiar, I'm just a couple miles north of Stanford University. I am a Chinese American who was born in China. Grew up in the States, primarily in California, actually, right here in Silicon Valley, and uh, moved to China in 2007, worked there for eight years, all pretty much in investing across a couple of different industries. But really, my love and the industry I've spent the most time in is technology. So my last job was my last official job before I decided to employ myself was in venture capital. And... I moved back to the States, you know, about five, six years ago and have been drawn back into the world of China tech. Uh, despite my best efforts to leave it, I didn't think I was going to have anything to do more to do with China tech after I moved back. But I have started a podcast, which is how some of you might know me, called Tech Bus China, focused on covering Chinese tech industry trends and companies. And then this year started working on a community primarily targeting investors, but also some operators uh, where, yeah, we just focus on everything related to China tech. And now I'm really interested in, mm, I think I've already said this publicly, but I'm working on 
you know, getting some deals together because that's really my interest and also where my skill set lies. Started off in investment banking, doing MA here in Silicon Valley. And yeah, just find myself drawn back to doing deals. Yeah, I, uh, you and I go back uh, quite a ways, actually. I started thinking about it. I think we've known each other for at least nine years. If not more, maybe more, but around that. I have this memory of you in our office at China Accelerator in Dalian around 2012. And you were <laughs> just sitting in one of the free desks close to me. And I'm trying to talk to you while you're going through a startup deck and you're just kind of giving me the mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you sat up straight and you're like, holy cow, look at that traction. Why wouldn't you lead with that? And then you're like, oh, I'm sorry. What were you saying? <laughs> wow. This is when you guys were still in Dali. I know that's a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Quite, quite some time ago. We're but- old. I know. We're Stop OG. saying that. OG. Audience, <laughs> ignore what Ray said. We're super young and in our 20s. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump into that. And you mentioned um, you mentioned the podcast Tech Buzz. Okay. Talk a little bit about where that came from, why it was created, and what have been some of the key highlights for you know that podcast and that company over the last three, four years. Yeah. So I started doing it for fun, really, because I'm friends with the founder of Pan Daily, which is a media dedicated to covering China tech. And, you know, this is, this is, yeah, this is four years ago, I guess, when um, podcasts were just emerging, not, not like today when everyone has podcasts, but, uh, and I was mentioning it to him. I said, Hey, you have a, a great written platform, but how about launching something else? And you might consider podcasts. These things seem to be popular with a Silicon Valley elite. And Kevin, the founder, came back to me after a couple of months and said, hey, you know that idea about podcasts? Well, I couldn't find anyone to do it. But since you came up with the idea, how about you try to get it started? And I said, I was like, okay, uh, you know, I, I was working on grad school at the time and some other projects. He said, okay, I have some time. Why don't I do this for six months? get a format going, build an initial audience, and then I'll you know pass it over on to you. And lo and behold, six months later, I was really enjoying myself and learning actually so much and realizing that even in the two short years that I had you know, not focused on China tech, remember I left in, at the very end of 2016, this is 2018, in, in sort of like this two-year window, a lot of Chinese tech companies had really grown and become true innovators in their own right. And we're truly becoming really interesting entities to keep track of. So I was like, well, maybe I'll just keep going on this because I find this intellectually stimulating. And then lo and behold, like three years later, four years later, I'm still doing this and started doing this pretty much full-time at the beginning of COVID. Um, Really started thinking hard about making it into a business at the beginning of this year. And that's where I am today with, like I said, a community, you know, serving investors, working with some institutional investors, doing lots of expert calls and trying really hard to come up with a, well, I shouldn't say trying really hard because I think it's actually a lot easier than I thought, but basically working very hard at connecting the the West more with sources, companies, talent, information from the ground in China. Yeah. And that is a lot of what this podcast 
aims to do as well is is kind of cross that cultural bridge, although we do it more more broadly, just entertaining all uh, experts talking about China, whether it's, you know, foreign policy or rare earth metals. Um, we're totally happy to have those conversations and hope that the audience is enthusiastic about listening to them as much as I am about interviewing them. We both left China the same year. We both left in 2016. And you're right. A lot has changed. I distinctly remember you were quoted in an article by a friend of ours, Paul Bischoff in Tech in Asia. And it was kind of his his outgoing article as uh, one of the last pieces that he wrote for Tech in Asia. And he was talking about in that article about how difficult it had been for his career writing about tech in China to comment on funding and how misrepresented funding uh, was in China. It was difficult to get to the truth. And he he quoted you alongside. I, I think we can all agree that this was for better, for worse or for why. And we don't have to get into that, but it was happening um, and I think the competitive nature of China was playing a large part in that. Has that part of China, you think, changed since you've been looking back into tech in China? Are we able to count on those numbers that we hear about fundraising and such that comes out of China? Yes, a lot more. Uh, so, Todd, what you're referring to is basically, yeah, a couple of it's hard to even re- like imagine that this was just a couple of years ago when a lot of the funding announcements were completely unreliable. And the joke was that they would announce some funding, a startup would announce some funding round, but actually the, you know, they would say it was say 20 million USD, but actually it was 20 million RMB, which is a difference of, you know, six to seven times. And I think um, that is no longer the case in China. In, in fact, if anything, there's probably still some, you know, in Chinese we call it shui fen, so some, some playing around with numbers that start up. Going to say white lies. Yeah, white lies. There you go. <laughs> when when people announce any positive news about their company, but for the most part, it's pretty accurate. So you see it happen here in the U.S. as well, though in Silicon Valley, you know, people will, companies will say they raised X Y Z funding, but in reality, they don't differentiate between debt and equity, and you know. If you're if you are a startup, that that's actually very significant difference, right? Because you know when most people see the headline number, they assume it's equity, but sometimes it's it's not all equity. Uh, so that's stuff like that still happens, but not the really egregious, not white lies, like straight up lies. Uh, that, yeah. that doesn't happen that much anymore. What was it like? And I've always been interested to ask this, and I don't think I've ever asked anybody this, even on the podcast or other. What is it like to do due diligence in, you know, in Mandarin on Chinese tech companies that are raising money? So I was very lucky to have done a range of, you know, investments. So from seed stage all the way to growth stage. So not quite pre-IPO, but like series B, C. And I would say, yeah, it, it varies because if you're a seed stage, I mean, to be honest, it doesn't really matter, right? You're looking at very, very small numbers, very little traction. And generally you're really betting on the team and the idea that they have, right? And and their ability to pivot to the the best idea in the industry, hopefully. So mm-hmm. you're not really looking at the numbers that closely. You're trying to understand the logic behind the product and 
you know, do the economics make sense to you on an intuitive level based on what you see in the market? But once you get to a sort of growth stage, then a lot of times, you know, we would, because these are, you know, larger investments, tens of millions of dollars, then we would engage some kind of service to help with, with diligence. And we would also look at our, ourselves at, you know, the contracts in depth, you know, the PL in depth. So um, probably it wasn't, it wasn't really honestly um, that bad. Um, I would say, of course, you hear stories of fraud and, and such, but, but really it's about understanding the details of what you're looking at, because whatever the company, you know, represents to you, uh, or, or sorry, whatever the company presents to you, you're just going to have to double check that you fully understand, right? Because they could say, hey, we have a contract for X, Y, Z million dollars, and it could be true. But then when you read the contract and see and, and understand fully the contingencies, right, then you may want to discount that number or you may want to look at it differently, right? From just understanding the the, the number itself, right? The details really matter here. And I don't think mm-hmm. it's at all different from what you would do here in the US. So- Yes, you do have the, you know, scary stories of companies who are like really outright frauds, but that happened far less in tech than in some other industries. So, yes, I had friends who worked in investing in, let's call it, you know, textiles or something where they they might go um, to visit a company on site. And then that company itself was like a fraud, right? Like with fake offices and fake employees and fake inventory. Yes, stuff like that did happen, but far less so in, in tech. You know, I'm, I look a little deeper inside of why I thought to ask you that. And I think it's because, and, and I've never done it in Mandarin because I can't do it in Mandarin, mm-hmm. but I'm Thinking about the tools, the platforms, the access to the data. And if you might maybe just for a sec, juxtapose how you go about doing due dill in maybe the U.S. versus China, where you're looking to corroborate the claims on traction or downloads or MRR or what have you. Well, you would just look at what the company has given you, right? You would look at what the company has given you uh, in terms of data, and then you would ask for third-party corroboration. But the again, the most important thing is not necessarily data itself, but do you truly understand what is driving the growth, right? Or what is really behind the economics? So someone could show you some really you know, nice up and to the right graphs that are perfectly legit and perfectly valid, but if you didn't understand that it's because of, you know, a certain special seasonality, uh, you know, special holidays, special promotions that were given or maybe some regulatory change, uh, then, you know, you're not really interpreting the data correctly, I would say. So or a pandemic, exactly. So it's less about the accuracy of the data, in my opinion. I find I found that. um I found that that most of the information you're going to want to really understand. Um, sorry, let me say this. I, I found that a lot of the information, the sort of additional color that you need that you can't get from the data is very important, right? So th- this is where being on the ground and having experience and having industry contacts and having worked there a long time really helps you because then you can do, let's call it like character diligence on 
the management, right? You can, you you easily know lots of people or have access to second degrees, maybe of people who've worked with the management, who can vouch for them, who have invested in them before and can tell you, hey, you know, these people really are, are the real deal or these people are not reliable, right? And that's the same thing you have here in the US, right? That's why those networks, informal networks really matter versus... Uh, just looking at, you know, the stats of the product, because let's face it, like, actually, if you're in an early stage of a company, a lot of companies could look pretty appealing um, just from a numbers perspective, because it's early, because, you know, they haven't really hit any real bottlenecks, right? Or conversely, a lot of them could look really ugly, but, you know, you're, you have a team that's on the cusp of discovering something great, and it's hard for you to uh, know if that is the right team, if that team has the best chance of doing that, if you don't have any other information from them other than you know meeting them for the first time on this deal. So you having that additional layer and context is going to be really important. In October 2019, you conducted a trip for investors to go and see China with their own eyes. Can you tell us a bit about the trip, how it came together, why you put it together, what the major takeaways were for the attendees, where you went, what you saw, and whether you would plan to whether you plan to redo it once the borders are back open? Yeah, so it was actually one of our listeners at this fund called Ensemble Capital came and you know reached out to us and said, "Hey, my friends have gone on this trip and, you know, written about it and thought it was really amazing. They went to China. You guys like are our source for China on the internet. We love your podcast. Would you guys consider doing something, you know, similar? And at first I was like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not a tour guide. I don't want to take you to China, um, you know, for, for two weeks or, or a week, whatever it is. And, um, uh, sorry, but but then he was like, well, what if we got a bunch of investors together? So it's not just us, right? Uh, and then I said, hmm, maybe that could be interesting because if I have a whole group of investors, there are some companies that I'd want to meet who probably wouldn't want to meet with, with me individually, but who'd want to meet with a group of investors, curated investors. And I was like, okay, let's, let's try this. So we got a group of investors together, about 15 of us, and I surveyed them on what sectors they're interested in. And I put together a target list of companies we want to meet. And I'm pretty happy to say that we, I think, met with pretty much all of the companies that we wanted to meet with, with the exception of like Tencent, mainly because they were in Shenzhen and we just didn't have enough travel time to, to go to Shenzhen. We were just in Beijing, Shanghai, and Hangzhou. And it was a great trip. We met with about half public companies, half private companies. And then in the middle of every meal, I also packed in experts. So I had friends of mine that I knew who were, you know, experts in, uh, you know, law or like e-commerce or whatever, come in and and, and talk during the uh, dinner times and lunch times and, and sometimes breakfast times as well. So it was super packed five days. We got rave reviews. Uh, I probably would consider doing it again, but probably not very often because again, it's not really my interest uh, to take people to China to experience it. And while I think it's interesting to meet the companies face-to-face, to be honest, these days, especially with the pandemic, 
I mean, this is how I spend my time every day. I just have calls on WeChat and Zoom and Microsoft Teams and what, whatever it is. So people are really willing to meet virtually. Uh, if you can, in fact, I would say that these days, if you don't have the skill to build relationships and execute deals completely virtually, then you need to develop that a- ASAP because lots of people can, and there's a lot of willingness to do that. You do not need to make, meet face-to-face. I want to talk about and, and broadly talk about and have you just point to trends in China's tech scene that you're seeing emerge right now because I think there is a ton. So some of the ones that you might be particularly excited about, and I mean, we've got product innovations. We can talk about services, consumer behaviors, fintech, AI, foreign tech policy, algorithms. There's a lot of stuff in there that we could likely do an entire three podcast series on, but I'm going to leave it up to you to pick your favorites to start. Uh, my favorites to start are probably just cross-border in general. So specifically cross-border e-commerce that is really big in China right now. So, so basically the way to think about it is China has been the factory of the world for the past couple of decades. And because all the top brands in the world manufacture there, the factories there have now Basically, they they now have the know-how to make the highest quality things. And it was really about them being able to uh, either make, you know, branded products themselves or connect with other domestic brand makers, right? And and that's what we've seen happen over the past couple of years um, where you have, you know, a lot of people who are either foreign educated or just high industry experience or uh, come from the internet industry and therefore have a very digital way, data-driven way of thinking about things, um, syncing up with these very qualified manufacturing facilities and making really interesting new consumer goods. Um, so that's one aspect. And the other aspect is, again, the the previous model from China had been to export primarily wholesale, right? B2B unbranded into the rest of the world. And now realizing that the value is really in the branded part, of course, uh, a lot, there's these, these same entrepreneurs I was talking about earlier are capturing the opportunity and and creating brands. And um, the market for that is like conservatively, like a couple hundred billion dollars, but maybe in, in the trillion dollar range. Um, and we're just starting to see that emerge. So that's a big trend. It's also something I'm really excited about just because, you know, being based here overseas, right? It's something I can help these companies with. And so I'm trying to work on, you know, advising a, a couple of companies on that. Um, I think the other thing that I'm probably really excited about from, this is not a sector I know much about, and I'm trying to get to know more about it, but just climate tech in general. You see China really leaning heavily into climate tech for, you know, honestly, for political reasons as well as um, economic reasons. But politically, it's just like climate change is very destabilizing in terms of national security. So the government really needs to be on top of this. And then, of course, like this is also a technology that no one else in the world um so far has, you know, cracked yet, right? This is emerging technology. So China wants to not be behind, right? China doesn't want to have the same case 
as you know, semiconductors happen in climate tech because they don't want to be beholden to the West in terms of key IP. They want to develop and own IP themselves. So there's a lot of investment and excitement about that. And governments put all, put forth a lot of favorable regulations specifically in climate tech. I think right now the most obvious one is electric vehicles. Uh, so I drive a Tesla right now, but I don't know, maybe my next car will be a Neo. I don't know. <laughs> so we'll see. But, uh, but you know, the global, uh, market is very attractive for all of these companies. And so it's also kind of a cross border play. And then the third thing, I'll just mention three things. The third thing I'd probably be excited about is SaaS, um, enterprise software. It's that that's a little less developed than the other two I'm talking about. I think it's still really early, but I've spent a lot of this year talking to uh, late stage pre-IPO enterprise software companies. And I, I think just it's obvious that there's a big market for that. It's just that the willingness pays still not there. So we have maybe about, let's call it give or take 10 companies that are at an IPO-able stage. And IPO-able really means $100 million in revenue. Uh, so that's really not very many when you consider the size of the economy and the number of developers and you know the, the market need, but it's growing quickly. So maybe in two, three years, it'll, there will be a lot more uh, companies that, that are public that are serving that segment of the market. I really found it fascinating with the new kind of data privacy regulations on and and the influence it has on the algorithms with regards to social media and content and the TikToks and the things like that. Can you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about what about what I'm trying to talk about, what it is, what happened and the impact that it might have? The guidelines on algorithms, yes. right, on use of algorithms. Yeah, I think I think the way to think about it is, so first of all, these are still in draft. We'll see how they go. But the idea is that algorithms, AI, you know, all these things are emerging technologies. And China recognizes not just in that, you know, the value of investing to these technologies, but the value of being first to regulate them. Because when you are first to regulate them, you could argue that, number one, you give your companies that have to abide by these regulations sort of leg up, right? In the future, they they will be more compliant because they've already invested the resources into following these rules. And the secondly is it's, it's a type of soft power in the sense that if these regulations are reasonable, then you may very well have other countries around the world who are also struggling to figure out how to regulate them, look at you, your rules as precedent, and then follow what you have. Because that's what we see happen a lot with, you know, antitrust, right? For example, China's antitrust or China's data privacy is largely following what the developed West and U.S. and Europe are doing. Well, now China has the opportunity to lead in, in regulations for some of these new things like algorithms. And I would say in China, the first of all, uh, you know, China is a highly, highly digitized society. So algorithms maybe rule more of the you know, your daily life than even they do here. Uh, and the second thing is that um, I think because China's political system is more top down, so it's much easier for the regulators to enforce and enact policy. And the, currently the algorithm uh, guidelines that have come out are really not, are really like not that 
uh, draconian, I think they're they're actually pretty reasonable. They they're along the lines of, you know, you must give people an ability, the ability to opt out. Right. If they don't want, for example, personalized recommendations, you must be able to have a version of your service that uh, lets them opt out. Um, you must let them have a version that where they can opt out specific tags that are assigned to them. That seems to me a little bit harder to do. Uh, we'll see if that ultimately is going to be um, what happens. But uh, it, it is it's actually not that different from the current e-commerce laws that sort of have it have some version of that already. So for example, on Alibaba, you can go in and see what your be your usage, your behavior has uh, gotten the algorithm to tag you with. So for example, um, yeah, in China already since 2019, the uh, Alibaba products allow you to remove the products that you're tagged with, which are personalized to your behavior, right? You can also remove personalized targeting of your identity as well as a whole. You cannot yet though, as the current guidelines suggest, edit the tags. So the, so that that isn't possible yet. We'll see what what happens going forward. But I think, you know, if you if you talk uh, uh, I think actually if if you talk to, you know, users here in the US as you know talk to ask some friends or a lot of these things are very reasonable and what people would actually want, right? You you probably want to know how, for example, Twitter uh, tags you, and then you might want to have the ability to edit it. I personally think that impact is not is not that detrimental to the companies. I think giving users more control, right, over how the algorithms um, t- tag them, is actually helpful to the companies in the long run because. I am then telling you what I want, you know, even like I am actually doing a lot of the work for you uh, versus you just, you know, using the algorithm to categorize me. I am also editing that for you and to improve my experience. And then um, hopefully have the, the idea is basically to give me the consumer more control over the algorithm. So I'm not completely at the mercy of this black box. And I think this is a trend that is global where every government is trying to figure out, okay, so you have all these like neural networks, you know, machine learning, whatever, you need to be able to explain what's happening and you need to be able to let people um, edit it. Continuing in the discussion of trends in China's tech scene and and because of, you know, uh, tech buzz and the rest, we're going to lean in on this for a little bit. Some of the, the, the trends that you're seeing emerge right now, um, what are one or two trends that Western followers of this podcast and people who listen to this podcast, what one or two trends do you think they may not quite understand? What about like even on fintech side of things? I think a lot of people don't even understand how rampant digital payments are. The social, what is it? The social credit score stuff. I'm throwing you bones here. I'm not sure where you want to go, but there's a lot. Exactly. So first of all, I think one or two, like there are so many, um, as, as you mentioned, the social credit stuff, people usually get it wrong. It's not what's generally reported. There's been a lot of retractions. You probably need to read the most recent articles on that to really get an accurate take. But I think what I would probably go with, because, you know, again, I focus so narrowly on China tech. And I think things that people get wrong are one that Chinese tech companies in general are much less bounded in how they think about themselves, right? They really think of themselves as like, you know, 
opportunists exploiting the newest wave. And it's not about saying like, I am an advertising platform or I am an e-commerce platform. It's really more like, I am a money-making machine and that is enabled by technology. And therefore I'm going to, you know, go with whatever the next big opportunity is. I think this is really clearly demonstrated actually on an entrepreneur. So individual level by Zhang Yiming, the the founder of ByteDance. He actually had a startup that was doing very well, uh, you know, or, or decently well in real estate before he quit and started ByteDance, not because he, you know, again, the business was failing, but because he saw a bigger opportunity. So the opportunistic mentality of Chinese entrepreneurs and startup companies, or sorry, and, and companies, I think, is underappreciated by investors globally. Um, that's, that's also why sometimes you see, um, I guess that's, that's also, that also accounts for the disconnect. I personally see sometimes when people look at Chinese tech companies and are like, well, why are they going into that? They're not, uh, you know, aren't they an XYZ company? Why are they going into ABC? But it's really because it's a great opportunity, right? It's like, you know, we see uh, Lei Jun at Xiaomi going into electric vehicles. Of course, like Apple's doing that as well. But, you know, you, you actually see a lot more companies in China, uh, including ByteDance, Meituan, et cetera. They've all invested in and considered and maybe much more seriously than we know making electric vehicles. That's something you see less willingness to do here in the West. So that sort of, yeah. The second thing I would say is, I think people also underestimate how much China is still looking to the West for, uh, sorry, I think people still underestimate how much China is still learning from the West. It's just that it's not necessarily at the product level anymore. I think it's gotten deeper now into management, into how you know companies are operationally run. You see really a lot of traces of like how Silicon Valley companies work being incorporated into Chinese companies. And you see this actually really over the last two decades, but I think it's really obvious over the last 10 years because so many of Silicon Valley um, engineers, operators, or whatever have gone back to China to work on companies. They've brought the best of Silicon Valley thinking into, into the companies. So what is happening now in China, as I would say, is that they're augmenting and they're localizing the best methodologies they see from everywhere um, and then operating on top of that. So that's something I'm actually really excited about. ByteDance is one company I like to mention as being especially good, especially shameless maybe is a better way of putting it, at incorporating all the best practices they see from around the world. So, you know, Amazon, um, Netflix, Google, Facebook, but also a bunch of Japanese companies as well. I agree. And I, I, like you said, you know, this, this, it just reminds me of the conversations we had eight years ago or 10 years ago about the whole copying culture of, of China when essentially it was rarely a straight transplant. It was more of an understanding and then an appreciation and then a localization and then an integration. But, you know, uh, I, I think a lot of times, Certainly more than people thought. It it wasn't just a straight copy as, as uh, everybody used to think. Yeah, 
Yeah. I think the street copying was a very easy mental shortcut or verbal shortcut, to be honest, that people use. But really, it's it's far more complex than that. Let's talk a little bit about uh, digital ecosystem users or those who participate in the digital ecosystems in China versus the West. Can we tease out some main differences from you that you see in how users in the West integrate, interact, use, purchase, rant <laughs> in digital ecosystems in the West versus versus what they do in China? Yeah, so a high level difference is basically that the largest players in China tend to have greater market power. So in other words, there are more monopolies in China, which kind of explains why there were so many antitrust regulations. Yeah, that passed that's earlier. something that they're going after right now, too. Yeah, exactly. So um, and, you know, the monopolies is partly because the regulations were fairly lax, to be honest. The main thing I think that distinguishes China from much of the developed West, but makes China actually very similar to more emerging economies is the fact that China is mobile first. China didn't have a very large PC population. Sure, it was in like still in the hundreds of millions, but as a relative percentage of the population, as it pertains to how much it was used for, you know, work and personal use, it was actually very low. So China is really a mobile internet, mobile internet first, mobile internet native country. And that explains how a lot of the products are. And then because of that, there are two things that China has that are very different from the U.S. One is lack of email, right? Again, just imagine no one really had PCs. Everyone just uh, went straight to smartphones. So there's no email for work or personal or, or very, very little. And then that's why you have apps like WeChat, et cetera, um, that, you know, are control like all of your communications. And then you have uh, the fact that China has a very different um, payment system because there are lack of credit cards, right? That's a very distinctly sort of Western uh, system that grew up and China just doesn't have that. That's why you have mobile payments because again, when payment systems started kicking in, you already have these things like smartphones. So you could sort of leapfrog and, and skip uh, you know, the, the plastic cards that we use here in, in the US. That is still pretty low adoption in China versus digital payments. Mobile payments are very, very, very high. We'll end it right there for part one of our discussion with my good friend, Ray Ma, China tech analyst and creator of Tech Buzz China. Be sure to join us again next week for part two, where we discuss the tech lash of 2016, the tech crackdown of 2021, tech companies Ray is watching closely right now, and dive into something referred to as lookism and how it is rampant in China right now. Thanks, as always, for listening. Have a great week. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.